This is the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast, episode 133. You're listening to the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast, the number one resource for running a profitable home recording studio. Now your hosts, Brian Hood and Chris Graham. Welcome back to another episode of the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast. I am your host, Brian Hood, and I'm coming here with my deep and sensual voice recording in the early morning hours. And so uh, <laughs> this is what I sound like in the morning. Uh, I am not here with my bald, beautiful, purple-shirted co-host today, Chris Graham, and he hasn't been here lately. And so if you are new to this podcast and you've only listened to like the last handful of episodes, you may not even realize that we have a co-host, a co-host who is awesome at what he does and very smart and sometimes has a lot better insight than I can give you. So today I wanted to change things up a little bit or a lot of bit, actually. This is the first time I've ever done this. And give you a little a little taste of Chris Graham, even though he's taking a little time off the podcast. And how am I doing this? Well, a friend of ours, Mike Indovina, runs a website and a podcast called Master Your Mix. And he actually had Chris on his podcast months and months ago. And I listened to the episode recently and I was like, this is something we need to actually have on our podcast because it's, it's basically Chris Graham's story in a nutshell, except it's a little bit more updated since the last time that we interviewed Chris on this podcast, which was literally episode two. <laughs> We're on episode 133 now. So I figured why not have Chris back on the podcast again to tell his story. And uh, the best way to do that is to just take an episode he did with our friend Mike Indovina and publish it here again. So this is a replay episode from the Master Your Mix podcast. And again, thank you so much, Mike, for allowing us to take this episode and republish it on our podcast. But this is a lengthy one. And if you're missing Chris right now, this is a great episode for you. If you've never heard Chris talk before or really don't know Chris's story as a mastering engineer, this episodes for you. And the reason is he has a completely different business model than what I practice. He is high volume, low margin mastering business where he's having to master hundred plus songs a month, where in my business, a 20 song month is a huge month. So in this episode, Chris talks about how he got to start. He talks about how he's differentiated himself. He even gets a little bit into gear talk because it's not Chris Graham if he doesn't get the gear slot alert. Although we withhold the gear slot alert on this episode just to respect Mike's podcast. And I think one of the most beneficial parts of this episode is when they get into how to set yourself apart from everyone else. And there's a, there's a part in there, and I want you to listen to it and really think about it, is sometimes different is better than good. And that sounds a little weird, but you'll understand what I'm saying here once they get to that section. So without further ado, with my deep and sensual morning voice, here is Mike's interview with Chris Graham. Chris Graham, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here, man. I'm excited to hang out with you today. Awesome, man. So for people who might not know your story and how you got into mastering, can you give us a little bit of that background? Yeah, so my story, um, when I was in college, I found out that you could major in audio production, which meant that you could record yourself for free. And I was like, wait, I'm a musician. I, if I major in this, I won't have to pay anyone to record my music anymore. And that was that was really it. That was the entire reason like I got into audio. I I've, I've always loved audio. I've always been fascinated by speakers and EQ and recording and the whole nine yards. Anything that made noise as a kid, I was just like fascinated by. And so a big part of that was my uncle was a musician. And when I turned like 13 or 14, he showed up on my birthday. He loaned me something for my birthday and he loaned me a giant PV console slash amplifier it was like this ridiculous 1980s it seriously weighed like maybe 300 pounds and he put it 
brought a speaker, brought the amp slash mixing board, and just let me play with it in the basement for like two years. That changed my life. So I like figured out how to like use EQ and like signal flow and all this stuff. So when I got to college, decided to major in audio. Uh, I was like a singer-songwriter, um, so I would go to coffee shops or play shows, and I'd play songs I made up for people, and eventually started using a lot of audio gear as well, so looping pedals and different effects. And I was really lucky in that this is like 2001, 2002. It was at the very end of people still being willing to buy an entire CD if they liked one song that you did. So it was a really, really lucrative time to be like this independent, self you know, DIY-ish type musician. So I hired, like, a friend of mine to do a record. We made a CD. It was really cheap. It was, like, 800 bucks. So, like, really stripped down. Printed out. I got a credit card, my first credit card, and uh, used the credit card to get the CD manufactured. And my grandpa, this was, like, a really big moment for me. My grandpa was like, don't do it, Chris. And my grandpa was, like, really successful. He's, like, a millionaire, built a business from scratch, knows his stuff. I was like, don't do it, Chris. Don't take... Don't take that risk. Don't put it on a credit card. And it was like a, a really big moment for me, like becoming a man, because I stood up to him. I was like, Grandpa, you just need to accept that I know my market better than you do. And he was like, oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, boy. And uh, so it was like, I didn't know any better, but that was the right thing to say. Got a bunch of CDs printed up, started selling them, and broke even on the day I released it. That's amazing. And it was awesome. So it like infected me where I was like, all right, music's the way you make money. And uh, I, I didn't realize that that wasn't maybe totally true, but <laughs> I was like really lucky. And so anyways, I took, I paid off the CD um, and then I started selling a, you know, a bunch of my, you know, tour, mostly like East Coast and play like, like Young Life camps. I don't know if anyone knows about Young Life, but it was like, it's like a Christian, like, kid they camp but not for christian kids and so i would like go and play these shows i'd like you know go out for a weekend as a college kid i'd sell like you know 180 cds i'd drive home and like it was just me so it was all it's pure profit so i took all that money bought recording gear started producing other singer songwriters so basically i'd record a song on my own i'd say hey look what i made and they'd say hey can you make something for me and i would say oh absolutely and uh would basically I would do these, like, my first record was, like, the first record that was ever a full record that with, like, full band that I did. I didn't even have the gear yet. I, like, made the sale. Somebody hired me. I convinced them to hire me. And then I took their money, their down payment, and went out and bought, like, more preamps and stuff. I did so the exact I, same thing when I first oh, started, too. Oh, awesome. <laughs> but it, it was great because it was like, all right, Chris, you took the money. You made some purchases. Now you better figure this out. Yep. And... Obviously, you know, nobody does a great job on their first record, but it was a heck of a learning experience, and uh, it really motivated me to, like, learn. Oh, this is such a bad choice, but I, I chose Digital Performer as my DAW, and it's, like, the least popular DAW you can get that's older than, like, five years old I right used now. Cool Edit Pro. Oh, man, yeah, <laughs> taking me back. That was actually my, my first, like, Let's be honest. Nobody paid for Cool Edit Pro no. back in the day. It was all pirated. So, like, my first software was Cool Edit Pro, and then I pirated Digital Performer. <laughs> and then, as soon as I uh, my second project, I paid I paid for Digital Performer. So I like used it for a little while, uh, and then paid it off. Definitely, I'm not pro pirating at all now. I don't pirate anything. Haven't for fifteen or twenty years. 
So I think the statute of limitations has expired on that. Suck it, government. <laughs> and uh, so anyways, uh, back. So, yeah. So uh, let me kind of get myself back to my point here. So, yeah, started making records for people, mostly singer songwriters. And like I would basically like create a band for them. So I would like figure out who their favorite artists were, figure out who played on their favorite artists records and contact these musicians, drummers, bass players, guitar players, etc. And then I'd make like a dream package for my clients and say, hey, I know you're a fan of XYZ musician. I know his drummer and his bass player because I just reached out to them on Facebook <laughs> and got them to give me a quote. And uh, I can put this all together. We'll go, we'll record scratch tracks here at your house probably. Like I'll set up at your house or you'll come to like my house. And then we'll go down to Nashville or wherever. Um, we'll record tracks with them. We'll come back. We'll finish the record. And I didn't know it, but I was like the worst producer ever because I was, my like production history was mostly related to me. Like my philosophy as a producer was related to my, to my philosophy as an athlete, which was, I was like a pole vaulter and a cross country and a 800 meter uh, track guy it was like my favorite thing in high school. And so my thought was if you want people to do a better job, just be really mean to them. And just be like, you could do better than that. Get back in there and do another vocal take. And just that's not the, that's not a good production style in the singer-songwriter genre. It might be in like heavy metal <laughs> or something. And uh, But so even still, it, you can definitely shoot down somebody's ego and make them like absolutely loathe you by the end of the session. And I was so good at that. <laughs> <laughs> and so I didn't know it, but I was like not a good producer um, because I had a lot of social skill issues. Um, in that like I just approached motivating I approached like getting the best out of an artist in just a really terrible way mm -hmm. but I was really good at the tech side of things so like I could sit down and figure out anything I wanted to pretty quickly from a tech side so um, some of my clients uh, would eventually run out of money and then we would have to like finish the record and there was no rec there was no budget for a mix engineer. There was no budget for a mastering engineer. So I would have to do everything, so that the record would get released, so that my future clients would hear it, so that I would get more projects. And like this was like the silliest thing in the world because when you're like, oh, I'm going to fake the mastering, and it's not going to be as good as it could, but whatever. Like that affects you. Don't get more projects by releasing subpar projects. You get more clients. By releasing awesome projects that people are like, wow, how do you do that? That sounds amazing. I want my record to sound like that. Air quotes. Yep. And that's like the way that you grow a production company. And I didn't do that right. And I ended up mastering a lot of my, my clients' projects. And it turned out I was good at it. And so I started reaching out to other producers and saying, hey, you know, can I remaster a record you've already released? That was awesome because I would have like the master that, that had been released and then I would try to do a better job. And it was great because I would, you know, do these masters for my friends that were producers. And they all came back and were like, holy crap, you're so much better than our current mastering engineer. We're going to use you from now on. And I basically just did that a lot. And then eventually um, I noticed, I really feel like as you're, you're building a business in audio, that ultimately, or in music or whatever, you have to listen to what people are telling you. And if everyone's like, oh, dude, that slow song that you did was amazing, then do more slow songs. Or, oh, my gosh, when you mix, it's so great. But you're producing and you're tracking and you're the drummer and all that thing. You have to listen to what people are, like, freaking out about. And that's your niche. 
Mm-hmm. That's where you should go. And that's what happened with me in mastering is that I would – the feedback I would get when I mastered other people's records was just like 5X the positivity of anything else I did. And so it just was natural to sort of lean into that. And, you know, for me, I, I uh, my wife had a teaching job, so I could afford to take risks. She was making a great living. This is like boy, 12 years ago or 11 years ago or something. And uh, so I, like, decided I'm just going to stop taking any projects that aren't mastering, which was crazy. Um, I definitely should have, like, slowly leaned into it more. But as, as it worked out, um, there was this uh, – this friend of mine that was a, a local producer that invited me over to the studio and they were tracking a record for this guy, John Rubin. John Rubin at the time was like w- had historically one of the, the number one Christian rappers in the world. And, uh, which is weird. Like I'm I, like, I have a weird background and I was like born and raised Catholic. And then I became an atheist and then I became a Christian again, <laughs> much later in life. So like Christian music is, I hated it as an atheist and, I'm still like navigating that <laughs> as <laughs> as a Christian, and anyways, so uh, it was this amazing opportunity, and I'm like sitting in the studio hanging out with them, and they had just gotten masters back. They're like, "Gosh, we hate these masters; they sound so bad." And I was like, uh, uh, I, "I'm a mastering engineer. Can I try?" And they're like, "Yeah, sure." And so I mastered for them, and uh, had like the references of like masters that they didn't like, and I made something they did like. It was that that was that was that simple. And they're like, oh, my gosh, this is great. So that was like my first big portfolio piece. And I just booked tons and tons of projects off of that. Oh, I skipped a big part of my story. When I decided to go full time as a mastering engineer, my mentor had always told me, you know, you you could do this for a living. You're really good at this. He was a producer. He's one of the first guys I did samples for or first guys I like mastered one of those records that he had already released for. And I was always like, yeah, right. No way. There's That's impossible. How would I get enough clients to do this full time? And one night, um, I was talking to my wife, and we were—I don't know—I don't remember how it came up, but the thought was, well, I could never be a full-time mastering engineer because people don't even really know what mastering is. It's so mysterious. Mm-hmm. It's so weird. And I had this idea of like, well, what if I had a, a website and there was like a player, and you would select the genre of music you wanted to hear a sample of, and then you could hit before and after, back and forth in real time, and it would basically just switch back and forth between a mastered and unmastered version. This doesn't sound that exciting now because everyone does that. But at, but the, at the time, ti- at the time, nobody had done this yet. Yep. I was definitely the first guy to do this. So when I put that player on the website, people would go to the website and be like, "Oh, I see what he does. Yeah, that sounds way better. Cool, awesome. I'll hire him." And I started running all kinds of Google ads. Started, I started doing a ton of paid advertising, and the idea was just like show them what I do, give them a free sample. And just promote the heck out of let me do one song as a sample for you. And I'll show you that I'm decent at this because of the before and after player. And it just exploded. It was just this like massive, ridiculous, like, holy crap, uh, 20 people want me to do a sample today. And I like really quickly had like a miniature breakdown <laughs> and was like, I'm, I'm not, I'm still really poor. <laughs> And I'm like good at this, but at the same time, like I can't keep up with the demand here. And I was booking projects, and it was awesome. Like strangers were hiring me, um, but I'll, I'll remember it really clearly. I was sitting right where I'm standing right now, and my wife had picked up a book for me at the library called The Four Hour Work Week. 
um, that a friend had recommended. And it had sat behind me for three months collecting late fees. And I was like, you know what? F this, dude. Like, I can't, this isn't working. I can't take it. I need something. I'm going to turn to the, like, this is my last resort. I'm going to read a book. <laughs> and so I grabbed the book, went to a coffee shop down the road, and was like, I don't have time to read this whole book. I'll just skip to chapter five. That looks interesting. And, like, the book, four-hour work week sounds like a book for, like, scam artists. It's not. It's this amazing, like, reorientate how you think about work, reorientate about how you think about your own efficiency, and shed all the ego issues that are holding you back. And so I read chapter five, not to get like way too into it, but it talked about something called the 80-20 principle, which is this idea that 80% of your problems come from 20% of the stuff that you do, and 80% of your income comes from 20% of the things that you do. And the logical conclusion there is like, well, you, you need to stop doing some things and try to do, once you've stopped doing some things that are, you know, that 20% that creates 80% of your misery, like that 20% of type of project or a certain client or tool that you use, like fire that, move on from that, and then you'll have more free time. Spend that time trying to duplicate the 20% of the things that you do that are creating 80% of your results. And like I read that and it was just like getting hit by lightning. It yep. was magical. And so I went home and retackled my business. Long story short, built a real business with real systems and customer satisfaction went through the roof. I had way more free time. My work improved dramatically because it wasn't like I showed up and was like, Ugh, I'm miserable. I don't want to work 12 hours for the 10th day in a row. Like I would work reasonable hours, which means I would make better decisions, which means the masters were way better. And then when I would have a conversation with a client on the phone, which is like my favorite thing to do, I like talking to people. Yep. So this is a terrible Terrible, terrible business to be in if you like talking to people because that's not what you do as a master engineer. <laughs> like you you listen, not like talk. And anyways, like so it's not a very relational business, at least traditionally. So all of a sudden, like once my business started to run well, once I started to figure out what the heck I was doing, there was all this opportunity to have conversations with clients and get a better idea of what they were going for, get a better idea of like their dreams and their hopes and stuff. And it just all of a sudden, like, the business is fun. Like, when I'm working for my mastering business, it's not work. It's a blast. It's like, I like to liken it to, you know, some people like to do crossword puzzles or Sudoku. That's what mastering is for me. It's just fun. I enjoy it. I, like, get giggly and excited when I, when, you know, when I show up for work each day. And uh, it's a blast. But it's only because I decided to, like, get my butt in gear and learn what, what a business what business is. And mostly that's about, like, creating systems so that you can provide consistent, awesome results and consistent, awesome customer service day in and day out, no matter what. That's amazing. I love that you told the story about reading the 4-Hour Workweek because I had a similar experience to it. And I, for years, I was like, I hate reading. Like, reading's for suckers. Same. And the first time I read a book, like, I think it might have been the 4-Hour Workweek. Actually, there was another book before that, which I'm almost ashamed to admit that was like a life-changing book for me. But it was this book called The Game. I don't, okay. know, if, I don't know if you ever heard of it. I, I haven't. It's a book about this guy who... Oh, wait. No, fought, I have. This is a, the pickup artist The pickup guy, artist right? one. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. man, that book changed my life. That book introduced me to the 4-Hour Workweek because, like, it was so much about, like, work on yourself and, yeah. like, 
accept that you're going to get rejected and like put yourself out there and get into all these uncomfortable situations. And for me, that's what I needed at the time. And it wasn't even just to like meet women at that time. Like it was like, for me, it was like, I just needed that. I had this like kind of like self-conscious issue. And then that, once I read that book and kind of like started to implement some of the stuff, I like realized, you know what, the more I put myself out there, the more I see these results. And then the better better my my love life was going the better my business was yeah. going you know what i mean <laughs> like, well there's no stronger incentive than to uh meet a significant other so yeah that'll definitely light a fire under your butt to yeah. self-improve but so anyway yeah once i read the four-hour work week after that and that just kind of like spiraled me into this book world where like Ugh. i realized the value in books now and i think that that's so important and we don't talk about that very much in audio you know we talk about like gear yeah. and whatever and we're going to talk a lot about gear on this episode today, but like, you know, like, yeah, it, it's amazing how sometimes just shifting your mindset of how to approach things in life just alters your, your future. Yeah. Well, and it's a funny thing. Like the, the, you know, I'm, I'm the same as you. I didn't really like reading and like my wife wanted me to read. And it wasn't until I like read, started reading these self-help business books where I was like, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. So you're telling me books are actually educational in a practical sense of like this could immediately help me with something and it was just like (laughs) oh my gosh like last place i would have thought i would have ever had any impact on my own life so i just like formed this addiction i've I, i don't even five six seven eight dozen business books i've read at this point and it's just amazing to like pick up a book like that and I use the term business books kind of loosely. They're basically they're self-improvement books. Yeah. And you pick up a book like that, and even if there's one sentence that just like rocks your face off, it was totally worth 15 freaking dollars to buy that on Amazon. And like I'm just obsessed with with this concept because historically, like our country, America, are you in the US? I'm, I'm in Canada. Know, I'm in Toronto. Okay. Okay. Well, same thing. Same yeah. thing. When when we got our independence from Great Britain, like Back in the day, there was this push to it was called, it was a, a period of quote unquote enlightenment, and it was a totally normal thing to read for self improvement, and it was the absolute bedrock of the United States being founded, and freaking freaking amazing. But then we go through phases in our society and in each country, I guess, where where we're more focused on romanticism and less focused on enlightenment. And right now we're sort of swinging out of a romantic period and into an enlightenment period. And like YouTube is one of the harbingers of this, of like you can get on YouTube and whatever you need to know, you know, like here's your drain plugged, go on YouTube. Uh, (laughs) Do you need to replace the water pump in your 1999 Jeep Wrangler? True story. Go on YouTube. (laughs) And like, so that's this amazing time of empowerment. But at the same time, YouTube's great, but there is nothing that's more chocked full of amazing information than the right self-help book because the right self-help book was written by one of the like top dozen people in any given field because it they can make a lot of money doing that. So to sit down with like a 180 page book from a, a world expert, I just read this book called uh, the one thing and I forget the guy's name, Gary. Oh, what's his name? Anyways, he's like a, I don't know, 100 millionaire or billionaire or something like that. This dude like took everything he learned um, building one of the largest real estate, I think the largest real estate companies in the world, and wrote a book about it. And so you pay 12 or 13 or 14 bucks for this book, 
and it's like this incredible mentor yeah. that just walks you through, hey, this is what works and this is what doesn't about getting work done. And it's just this like, oh, unbelievable. So, yeah, I'm just – this is like part of my obsession with our with doing podcasting and with our podcast, the Six Figure Home Studio, is just trying to light a fire under people's butts to experiment with – enlightenment you know to experiment with trying to self to better yourself and read books because it's just this like the coolest thing in the world is generating freedom is for you to be able to do what you want when you want how you want and the only way to do that is to get smarter and the best fastest easiest way to do that is probably books but also listening to podcasts so of course yeah yeah the podcasts are the new youtube in a way yeah. Oh, dude. Copyright. <laughs> right. Yeah. You need to you need to trademark that. They are the new YouTube. Yeah. I, I've been like preaching that. I really think the next decade is the decade of, of podcasting. It's, it's the that, audiobook. Like we're, we're going to go back to like more people being deep into books. But the podcast is like the the audiobook ish kind of transition. Yeah. Back into it's like that. This, yeah. It's like a combination of YouTube and books, basically. Yeah. And yeah, I I really firmly believe that we're coming into this next decade is going to be podcast. Like we're going to look back and say that's when the podcast really started to grow because I don't know how many of you guys that are listening are listening on the Apple podcast app. It's like the most popular app there is. It's the worst app ever. <laughs> it's so bad. You can't see download numbers to see which is the most popular episode. You can't write a review on an episode. You can't comment. If you want to share, it's like three clicks buried deep into like how to even get it. There's just no way to create a community easily in the way that there is with like YouTube or Twitter or Instagram or any other social app out there. So podcasting really isn't social media yet. It's just new media. But once social media and podcasting collide, oh boy, podcasts are going to grow so fast. (laughs) Yeah, awesome. So let's take it back a little bit. You were talking about, um, so you kind of just were working on projects and kind of got thrown to the wolves when it came to having to learn how to master. How did you learn to master? Because for so many people, mastering is this like dark art that people don't know like what it yeah. is. It's this mystery, right? And there's a lot of people who think that if you know how to use an EQ, a limiter, a compressor, then you essentially have the same tools as most mastering engineers. So what's the point in mastering, right? Yeah. Well, and this is a complicated conversation, and I would say, let me begin it with, with, with saying this. The most important question in mixing, in mastering, in recording, in writing, you name it, is this. Why do humans like music? Let me say it one more time. Why do humans like music? And the answer to that question is, I don't freaking know. <laughs> I don't have any idea why humans like music. Why, when I listened to Bob Dylan the other day, his the Free Will and Bob Dylan record, why, when I listen to that record, do I get goosebumps and get like weepy? What the heck is happening there? I don't have any idea. It doesn't make any sense. It seems like kind of lame and fruity or something that I would get emotional, like listening to like a recording of some guy in a room by himself. That's weird. It's self-help in another way. Yeah, man. So I I think it all comes back to that. Why do humans like music? And I think the most important thing to embrace in this conversation of what is mastering, why master, why hire a mastering engineer, et cetera, gets down to this weird question of why do humans like music? We don't know. And a good mastering engineer, in my opinion, you can measure their results with only one thing, 
and that's the number of goosebumps on your left arm when you listen to their work. Specifically your left? Specifically your left. It's got to be your left. Your right doesn't count. It's got to be your left, below the elbow, <laughs> between the wrist. So when you listen to a song, whatever um, engages you more emotionally is better. That's it. There's not like, oh, it's, oh this one's 13 lefts and that one's 14.2. Uh, None of this stuff matters except in the service of goosebumps. And that's the most important thing. And a good mastering engineer has some sort of ability to make a song more goosebumpy. And so, yeah, there's EQ, yeah, there's compression. But in my opinion, a lot of it is a good mastering engineer knows when to stop doing those things. He or she does just enough, and then they get to the point of peak awesomeness, peak goosebumps, and they stop being like, well, I'm going to put an exciter and a BBE sonic maximizer on this. <laughs> and then, oh, oh, two less goosebumps. Oh, three less goosebumps. At, at that point, like, it, it's really difficult to stop. It's really difficult to have the, the, the ability to know when enough is enough and when you've got it as awesome as you possibly can. And that... Um, it's almost like a type of emotional intelligence, much less than like a scientific or a technical intelligence that I think makes a good mastering engineer a good mastering engineer. So, yeah, on, on one level, you hit the nail on the head that pretty much everybody has access to basically the same tools a mastering engineer has. There's definitely like some crazy voodoo technology stuff here of like it takes a certain type of audio engineer to really – be able to kick ass with a multi-band compressor on the master bus. There's just like, you know, how many different possible settings can you come up with with something like, you know, the Waves, you know, Lin, yeah. Lin MB. I mean, like literally millions of possible combinations of settings just from that one plugin. So yeah, there's some there's some technology there. Yeah, there's some knowledge. Yeah, there's some science. But everything, and this is what I'm driving at, is the whole goosebumps thing is about making better art. Everything you do as a mastering engineer is in the service of making better art. And when you have somebody that's mastered, you know, tens of thousands of songs or thousands of songs, they're going to probably make art better than someone who's made hundreds of songs. So Very true. Yeah, yeah, there's this level of like technical expertise, but ultimately like and gear, but ultimately like it's not uncommon to find someone that has like, you know, a hundred thousand dollars worth of gear that's not very good at mastering. Yeah, the it's gear like, doesn't make you good. Yeah, it doesn't make you good. It doesn't help you make more goosebumps. Making, oh, my voice cracked there. It doesn't help <laughs> you make more goosebumps. What helps you make more goosebumps is basically like emotional maturity, the ability to be like, I'm going to stop. There's a little voice in the back of my head, like my conscience that tells me like, you know, when I should stop yelling at my wife or when I should, you know, help the old lady across the street who fell on her driveway that like compulsion also tells you that's enough, Chris. Stop messing with their with how their song sounds, and that discipline to stop, I think, is much more important than like. Well, I got um um, um I have seventeen different types of dither, well, which I can apply to this master. I have chosen uh, number fourteen <laughs> because of uh, maximum uh, dynamic uh, range copulation, blah blah blah, like all that stuff. It only helps if it's in the service of more goosebumps. For sure. I love that. That that's a great way of putting it. I always say like when Thanks, it comes man. to mixing, your job is to create that emotional attachment to the listener. And yeah. if you don't do that, you failed. Yeah. It does it doesn't matter if the mix kind of sucks, but like that emotional attachment's still there. Like that that ultimately rules. 
Amen. Well, in case in point, dude, go listen to anything from Motown in the early 60s. I was just about to say that. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah, so go listen to My Girl. Classic song from The Temptations, one of the greatest songs of all time. The mix is so bad. It's terrible. It's like grating and harsh and overly bright and exhausting to listen to. But damn, is that a good song. There's one of those mixes. I don't know if it's My Girl. It might be one of the other Temptations songs. But there is this like woodblock hit that's in the middle of the song. And it's like Shut- it's like 30 dB louder than everything yeah. else in the mix. And every time I hear it, I'm like, how the hell did that slip? But I'm like, you know what? In the end, it doesn't matter. Like <laughs> This song is yeah. still an amazing song. Like, Are you talking about the... Uh- Shotgun, get him for a run now. Maybe. It's either that or like the way you do the things you do or something like that. It's one of those songs. There's like, yeah, it's something that just jumps right out. They're all so bad, but they're all so good because Barry Gordy, for whatever reason, he knew how to make goosebumps, dude. And like that magic was incredible. So, side note, um, about 12 years ago, my wife and I were driving, we were going to go on vacation up in the pinky finger of Michigan. And so we drove through Detroit and I had heard that you could literally tour Hitsville, USA, where they recorded more number one hits than any other room on earth. It's amazing. And, and, and side note, more number one hits in a racist, toxic white supremacist society as a bunch of African-Americans in Detroit. Freaking amazing. Coolest thing ever. And it was one of the most, like, amazing trips of my life because we, we got in, um, like, we waited in line. We were the only white people there. It was, like, hundreds – it was, like, this massive African-American, like, family reunion. And so we get into the the snake pit, which is the room they recorded all this in. And uh, it was, like, the highlight of my life. So the <laughs> the tour guide's like, all right, well, we're going to get – you know, we need, you know, like, four guys to sing background on My Girl, and we need one guy to sing lead. We're going to – we're going to do like a sing-along in the room. And so you get these four, you know, old African-American dudes. And they're like, all right, who who else can sing? Who can sing lead? And this lady, this like older African-American lady looks over me and she says, she says to the whole crowd, that white boy looks like he can sing. <laughs> and I was like, oh, God, here we go. And so it was like one of the most, one of the greatest moments because I was like, this is it. Like, this is magic. I'm just going to lean into this. And so they start singing the background to my girl. And I just like lock eyes with my wife and I just let it belt like from the, the top of my lungs. And it was just so fun because this was this is an area that like, this, I love where this conversation is going with Motown because they have overcome more technical issues in their songs. Like their recordings are just absolutely awful. Yeah. And but they're this but the quality of the songs, how much people love them is just massively outsizes the quality of the mix. Now, I'm not saying we should intentionally make bad recordings, but we shouldn't get so distracted by fidelity that we end up crushing the soul of the song. And who's to say that like a better sounding version of My Girl would have been a a better hit? There was some weird magic that they dialed in, that they focused on the right things, and there's a lot more to learn from that then uh, here's how you uh, uh, set the attack on a limiter. uh, (laughs) You know? So, yeah, I I love that. I was talking to – who was that I was talking to yesterday? Mark Eckert. Uh, We had this guy Mark Eckert on the show yesterday on the podcast. We haven't released it yet. It's coming out pretty soon. 
but he mentioned about there's nothing more powerful than a song. The song rules all, and everything else is almost irrelevant. Um, I bet someday there's going to be a number one smash hit on the radio that some kid recorded on his iPhone by himself. The song's just going to be that good, and no one's going to care that it sounds like trash. It's just that good. And I think for us as audio engineers, we like to convince ourselves that the fidelity is the king, is not. Amen. Amen, brother. <laughs> yeah, that, that, so I also did the Motown tour as well. And like, oh, cool. it, it's it's the coolest place. And when you get into like the snake bit, like you said, it's you look around and you're like, this is this is it? Like, this is where they made all these hits? Like, it's, it a, it's like an empty, <laughs> shitty garage. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you just have like a couple of mics hanging from the ceiling. And we get so fixated on all of this gear. And we need to like multi-mic everything and have like the yeah. most expensive compressor and blah, blah, blah. And it's like... No, like at the end of the day, like that was all like the song was the king and it didn't matter what gear they had. They they probably had the budgets to to add more mics if they wanted, but they didn't, you know. Well, and what's so cool about it is they made a lot of stuff. Yeah. So like I'm sure you saw this too, but when they gave you the tour of the upstairs in Hitsville. The reverb chamber? The reverb chamber. Oh my God. Dude. (laughs) So like back to what we were just saying about, uh, I think it's called shotgun or shotgun wedding or something like that forget the name of the song but the beginning of the song is bang shotgun get him before we run now and so when you're walking through the upstairs of the studio there's an attic access panel that's been removed like a normal house attic access and what they did is they hired this 18 19 year old kid and he went up in the attic with a bunch of plaster and he plastered everything so every every surface in that attic is smooth and they put a bullhorn on one side of the attic and a microphone on the other side of the attic. And when they wanted to reverb, they would send signal from the board with an aux to the bullhorn. And they used another channel on the mixing board as the return, which was the microphone in the attic. And it was so crazy to like, I'll never forget, I walked up to that attic access, reached my hands in the air and clapped and heard that reverb and was like, oh man! That is it. That, that is the sound. That was sound. exactly my experience. It's the most surreal oh. thing because that that is that Motown sound, like yeah, in a oh, clap, f- yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Literally, like that moment of just like, oh gosh, <laughs> it's like the most nerdy audio thing in the world. But it's not fidelity. Like it's not a clean, gorgeous, like sparkly. No, beat. It's just it's distinctive. It's memorable, and that might be honestly. This is an interesting place to take this conversation. That might be one of the things that made Motown so successful is bet they had something better than fidelity. They were distinctive. When a Motown song came on the radio, you know it's a Motown song even if you've never heard the record before. Absolutely. Even if you've never heard that song, you're immediately like, oh, this has got to be Motown because nothing sounds like this. So to that end, I think there's almost an argument to focus more on being distinct and instantly recognizable, having a... a uh, to a swag, if you will, that people are like, oh, that's that's Mike's record. Yeah. That sounds like a Mike record. So if you've got something like that, that might there might be more buried in the secrets of what is a hit record, what makes a a hit in that distinctive like sort of weirdness. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know, man. This is all like we're this is mystical yeah. stuff that we're talking about. It's like mysteries that like. 
anyone that's like, well, I can answer that question for you. I'm like, oh, you're full of crap. <laughs> Nobody knows. Like, it's all mysteries. Yeah, for sure. So then let me let me take a step back from that conversation then and ask you, what is your current studio setup like these days? Are you mainly in the box? Do you have a bunch of analog gear? Does that yeah. matter to you anymore? Good having question. analog gear? So, no, I'm not really an analog gear guy. You know, for me, um, I'm aware that most of the time... When you get a project, some corners were cut at the mixing stage or at the production stage or whatever. And as a result, I think that the recallability of the mix and the recallability of the master is more important than almost anything else because you want to be able to have the artist say, oh, man, can we turn the vocal up a little bit? Yeah, sure. Uh, send me a new mix. I'll have it for you later today. That sort of speed to me seems more important than like, then, then I think the main point of the analog gear is to impress people. It's 100%. To like, yeah, it's to post pictures on Instagram. It's to have people come over to the studio and be like, oh, gosh, you must know what you're doing You're because you're really in debt. <laughs> like, you've really gone all out. So I typically stay in the box. I very rarely, really, I haven't, it's been a pretty long time since I've done anything out of the box. But for me, I think mastering is mostly about making the right decision, mostly about stopping when you've done enough, and then mostly about having the flexibility to make quick changes. So for me, um, I love being in the box. My fantasy that I'm working on right now is like I've got a cool setup here. I've got like uh, you know Bowers and Wilkins speakers and a really kick-ass vintage tube amp that drives them, and the Crane Song Avocets, so the same front end everybody on on in the world has that's mastering for, uh, full time. Sounds great. It's awesome. But my fantasy. Um, and there's a couple guys that have done this um, as well. My fantasy is to eventually be headphone only. Wow. Is to be the headphone mastering or a headphone mastering guy because there's other guys. And the big thing for me there um, is, one, I'm obsessed with headphones. They're all, they've always been one of my favorite items on earth because I grew up in a, a pretty dysfunctional family. And headphones were like this instant cave that you could have privacy in and go into your own world and escape. So I have a really um, intense emotional attachment to headphones. So it feels more natural to me in some ways to work with headphones, but I'm not there yet. Um, it's like anything else. You know, you get new monitors, it takes a while to get used to them. You know, you get a new DAW, it takes a while to get used to it. I am in the process of trying to get used to mastering on headphones. Um, I've been using uh, Sonarworks, and these uh, they sent me these Sennheiser 650s that they had calibrated. Um, it's one of the benefits of having a podcast. You get lots of like free stuff. <laughs> uh, but they sent me these 650s, and it's been, uh, for the first time, I've been like, oh, yeah, I could master with headphones. I know what I'm doing. Sonarworks is a crazy software. I actually just got it like last week and was starting to mess nuts. around with it, and it's crazy. Yeah. So, and for those of you guys that don't know about it, Sonarworks is like, there's a couple different types of it. The cheapest kind is like you plug in a pair of headphones, you tell Sonarworks what headphones you're using, and you route all your audio to this program, and it corrects the EQ curve of the headphones. So you get like ruler flat frequency response. And even with like these custom ones that they calibrated, they like calibrate the difference between drivers. So like there's a little bit of difference between like, you know, frequency, there's like a half a dB more 5K in the left driver than there is in the right driver, and it equals all that out. And when I first got this pair of headphones from Sonoworks, shout out, Lee, thank you so much. Um, 
when I first got this stuff, it was like, whoa, okay, that was the push I needed to have more confidence when I'm mastering with headphones. Because my biggest problem when I'm when I'm working with headphones is sometimes you get in this like weird, like disoriented state because like you your ears are covered and yeah, suddenly, you don't hear the rest of the world around you. Yeah, it, it can get disorienting, and all of a sudden you're like, what's my name and, and who am I? Which way's up? Like where? Like <laughs> it can get really disorienting. And Sonarworks has really helped uh, me figure that out. So I'm I would say I'm like ninety percent of the way there. Um, I have not been brave enough to like take a laptop on the road for a long period of time and just work for my clients with headphones but that's the dream is that someday uh when i feel like i'm ready i want i want to like kill all the sacred cows and be like yeah i master your record on really fancy headphones a really fancy converter a really fancy headphone amp and my macbook yep and do a good job because that'll be obviously job. that'll yeah. be the thing, and people will be like, "Really, headphones mastering?" Well, but, that's the thing is in in rock, it's a little less common, but in other genres, this is there are hits like that have been smash hits on the radio that have been J Cole stuff, yeah, for example, J Cole stuff mastered on in ear headphones. Whoa, cool! Yeah. It's, a, it's a brave new world. Yep, for sure. I'd love to talk a little bit about your website because obviously that's yeah. been a major source of driving customers to your business. And, and um, I think there's a lot of people out there, myself included, who like have this idea of when you want to make a presence for yourself online, you build yourself a website and you put your bio on there, you put some samples of your audio on there. And a lot of people just let it sit expecting this kind of, if you build it, they will come kind of idea. Yeah. And you have managed to figure out a way of driving a ton of traffic and and converting a lot of customers through your website. I think that's amazing. So I was wondering if you can go into a little bit of detail on how you went about doing that and drove the traffic to it. I know you kind of mentioned yeah. ads earlier. Yeah. Well, to call a spade a spade, I feel really lucky and blessed and that I happen to be good at it, at, at least three things. Um, I think in today's environment in music, if you're only good at one thing, you're going to have a really hard time running a business. I lucked out in that I am primarily a, a learner and a problem solver. That's what I enjoy doing the most, more than anything. Um, so that makes me a good mastering engineer. At least it helps a lot. Um, that makes me a good marketer, or at least it helps a lot. And that makes me really good at building systems, or at least it helps a lot. So for me, um, I lucked out in that I was good at mastering in the first place. There was like some natural ability there, and, and um, for whatever reason, I, I've, I have good ears. And that had been the case like since I was a kid. Like I could, you know, uh, as a piano student, um, I'm going to brag a little bit. I, I hate doing that, but I think this is important to recognize, or important, excuse me, to to explain, like as a piano student, as a kid, we would play this game. We were Suzuki method. So it's ear training. And the game would be like, I'm going to play either five or four or three notes from a song. And then you have to tell me what song it is just from those few notes. And for whatever reason, I could consistently identify all the songs that contained two note combinations. <laughs> and so this was like weird. And I, I like was dropped as a baby. I fell down the stairs and hit my head. And maybe this has something to do with it. <laughs> but um, true story, fell down the stairs passed out, woke up. It was crazy. It was like nine months old. I remember it like it was yesterday, which is creepy, really weird. 
psychology. I should go see a shrink probably about this. <laughs> and then but, that moment made your hearing infinitely it, better. It was like that movie Rookie of the Year with Henry Rolling. Exactly. <laughs> oh, it's like one of the most underrated movies ever. <laughs> when he throws that pitch, when he catches the ball and throws it back and, oh, we got more talent in the stands than we get on the field today. Oh, I love that movie. I need to watch that with my kids. But this is a real thing. Like There are um, people who have sustained brain injuries and then they have more skill than they did before. Maybe that happened to me. Maybe it didn't. I don't know. Anyways, long story short, I've got good ears. I've got like some taste, some talent, or whatever you want to call that there. Thank God. Um, I, I can't take any credit for that. I, I won the lottery there. Um, but the the most important thing, I think, from a website standpoint, to really get to your question here, was I think the mistake that most people make in the audio business is they look around at what everyone else is doing and they copy it. And they say, oh, this must be the normal thing to do. Uh, I'm going to copy it. And we're notorious for this. So case in point, I know like I'm going to like get crucified here, but like NS10s, do you know Hate what? Like, they're awful. Oh, God, they're so, they're so bad. They're not even studio monitors. They're cheap like consumer speakers from the 1970s, and they're, just, they're not good. But, but one guy had a hit mixing in NS10s, and then everybody was like, oh, well, that must have been the secret. I'll get NS10s. And, like, not that you can't do a great mix on NS10s, but, like, this, like why, why would you see the NS10 and say, oh, yeah, that's, that's the secret. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go with lo-fi speakers for <laughs> Because mixing. now CLA is out there saying they're the sound of hits, or he's oh, the sound good. of hits. Gracious, <laughs> yeah. So don't get me started there. So, yeah, so, like, we're a copycat industry. As much as we would love to believe that we're this rock and roll, do-your-own-thing, and, like, that's the nature of rock and roll is, like, I do what I want, I'm different, and I embraced it. And I think for the website thing, most people make the mistake of like, I'm going to make my website look like all my competitors. Newsflash, you can't build a business by copying your competitors. If, if you do, your only chance at building a business is to execute much better than they can. And if you look at somebody that's 15 years ahead of you and you copy what they're doing, they have 15 years of experience, unless you're a flipping genius you're not going to out-execute them. The easiest way to do something that'll work on a website is to do something that nobody else is doing. Stand out. Be unique. Do what Motown did. Have mixes that sound kind of weird. I'm not saying that that's the, that was their secret, but like they were distinctive. If your website isn't distinctive, no one's going to remember you. You're just going to they're going to be like, "Uh, I went on like five mixing websites today." Uh and they can't even like think of what your name is. They can't yeah. think of like they can't even describe what made you unique. So like you can compete on price, you can compete on speed, you can compete on quality, you can compete on like some other weird X factor of like, you know, we'll record you remotely over video chat or we'll um you send us your mix with your plugins on it and we'll take it from there. There's all sorts of things you can do to be unique. Mm-hmm. And if you want a website that converts, you have to do something nobody else is doing. And so that's sort of the frustrating part of like me giving out business information on the, the podcast, on the Six Figure Home Studio podcast, is ultimately you have to differentiate. Mm-hmm. That's the key. You have to do something that's like, whoa, cool. I've never seen that before. Bookmark. <laughs> that's the key. So for me, it's not that I did any particular one, th- any one thing particularly well. It's that I did at least one thing really, really differently. And to this day, like there's other people that do the before and after thing live, but it's not kind of as cool as the, 
on my website, it looks like this weird analog piece of gear, and it feels like a toy. Like, you're playing with it, and you get to experiment, and people love that. And as a result, like, um, one of the best things to do when you have a website is to get Google Analytics set up on it so that you can see, like, how many people are on it, how long they're staying, where they're going. Like, on my Google Analytics, people typically hang out on my website for, I think it's three and a half to four minutes, depending on the time of the year. Uh, that's the average time on site, and that is a monster amount of time to see on Google Analytics. But it's mostly because like that before and after machine is yeah, fun to play with. Yeah, people are listening to it. Yeah, yeah. So people are spending a lot of time goofing around with that machine and getting a feel for is this somebody I want to work with. So yeah. So to bring it home, like the most important thing is to do something unique, to do yeah. something that's like surprising and singular. And think about it. Think of all your favorite bands that you've ever listened to. Like, nobody's a gigantic, no offense to anybody, no one's a gigantic, like, Puddle of Mud fan. Because Puddle <laughs> of Mud sounds like Creed, and it sounds like Nickelback, and it's it's not distinctive. Yeah. So all your favorite bands are totally singular. They're totally weird. And if that's not the case, um, I don't know that we can be friends, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But But everything, think about everything that you like. It's bizarre. Yeah, it's unique. It stands out. So I'm drinking a can of of Pomplamoose Lacroix right now. Um, huge fan. Who would have ever thought ten years ago that one of the number one selling beverages in the United States would be sparkly water with just a little bit of grapefruit oil in it and no sugar? Weird. It's a very strange beverage, but because it is, it stands out in a crowd. And I think that's the most important thing. You know, any of you audio engineers that are listening, any of you musicians that are that are listening, can take home too, is that if if it's really easy to define your genre, um, it's probably not going to go super well for you. Yeah, you know, the all the best acts ever were like had invented a genre in some way, shape, or form. And you look at even like a couple years ago, Mumford and Sons exploded. What the heck is Mumford and Sons? Is it bluegrass? No. Is it like indie rock? No. Is it like folk? No. Like, it's it's really hard to define. Adele, same, you know, like, mm-hmm. what the heck is Adele? Is it R&B? No. Is it pop? No. no. <laughs> like, I don't know what it is. And it, it's as a result, another great example, you know, one of the most popular bands in the world, 21 Pilots. What on earth is 21 Pilots? It, it's Yeah, it's all over it the place. It's all, is it pop? Is it rap? I don't, I don't really completely know what it is there's a humility mm-hmm. it's like there's some rap and there's some pop but there's a humility to their music and uh it kills it for them so i think a, a big part of this and this is true across all art and across all business is that only the unique ones rise to the top absolutely and it's one thing to have that differentiating factor like you said though you could have put that before and after player on your website but if no one went to your website it wouldn't have mattered so, this is true. so then this is true. how do you get people to check out your website? You, you mentioned ads, but is that the only way? No. So, um, so my story is I got the website up and running. I found somebody who could build it for me and I lucked out. This was a, just a stroke of luck that one of the best, um, user interface designers around happened to be a friend of mine. And so he builds websites that people interact with they play with it makes it a toy i was really lucky that he knew how he that he was able to figure out how to build this um and then i was really lucky that i'm a complete nerd 
and got completely OCD about learning how to run paid ads on Google. At the time, there were not many people competing in the mastering space for paid ads. And so I went in, learned a bunch of stuff, and crushed it. And then a, a later on, I would, you know, every couple of years, I would redefine how I was marketing myself and where I was marketing myself, and I would crush it. And again and again, um, back to what I said before, there's not like a one-size-fits-all for marketing. You have to do it in a unique way in a unique space. There's not like, well, if you're mastering, you just need to run this type of ad. If I give that advice out and every mastering engineer begins to take it, it will no longer work for any mastering engineers. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Well, I was going to ask about that. Like, What do you suggest people do in terms of their ad copy to differentiate mm. themselves? Because I'm sure it's not enough to just say like, hey, I'm, a, I'm Mike. I'm a mastering engineer from Toronto. Check out my studio. Click here. Like, totally. Probably not going to get many hits. Yeah. Well, the first thing you have to do is you have to have some kind of lead magnet. And so for me, my lead magnet is I'll master one song for free for any artist. And if you're a mix engineer or producer, I'll master one song for free for all of your artists. So this sort of like, hey, come here, give me a try. You can get something for free. There's no cost to you. It's no risk. There's only potential upside for the customer. So figuring out something like that for whatever the business is, is an easy way to get attention. And especially if you are putting that message out in the right context. So like case in point, right now, I'm marketing. Like I'm on an audio web, I'm on an audio podcast and I'm talking about getting a free mastering sample. And at least some of you are like, hmm, interesting. <laughs> but like at the same time, I'm not trying to market. I'm just trying to help people. And I think that's a that's a big, let me massively shift this conversation. Sure. Is that, you have to help people. If you are in audio and you're thinking, well, I just want to like be a professional audio engineer so my mom uh, will, will stop judging me. Like if that's your driving motivation and it's about you, it's about you getting paid, quote unquote, what you're worth, it ain't going to work. If you're out there trying to help as many people as you possibly can, you're going to win. And like you're going to, the side effect of helping people is success. Absolutely. So that's huge. And so for me, I was like, hey, people don't understand what mastering is. I'm going to help them understand with my player. And then I'm going to help them understand what mastering can do for them by giving them a free sample. And probably I'm going to call them while I'm working on their sample and talk to them about their mix and give them free mixing advice. If they decide to book a mastering project with me, I'll give them free mixing advice. And it helps them turn out a better product. And the more you help people, the better your business is going to, is going to go. And I think that's probably the biggest misconception I see and like all this, like, well, how do you market? Well, how do you master? Well, how do you, all, all of these things all come back to how do you help the most people? And you can't help that many people by being like everyone else. You have to offer unique help. That's the way you help the most people. But essentially like business, the marketplace, capitalism, whatever you want to call it, is a race. And he or she that helps the most people the most wins. And like, I'm a student of history. I read business history books all the time. That's the case in every successful business. So case in point, um, John D. Rockefeller. You know, I say that name and immediately people are like, oh, he must have been a villain. Oh, man. It's too bad that Scooby-Doo and those kids weren't around back then because they would have caught him <laughs> pretending to be the monster. And I would have got away with it, too, if it wasn't for you pesky kids. Like, this this idea of, like, him as a villain, and he wasn't perfect. He was definitely really gross in some ways, but let me walk you through his business. 
And I think this is helpful for any of us in music, any of us in audio. John D. Rockefeller was an accountant, basically. He did people's books, and he figured out a pain point, uh, a, a problem that many people in our country had, especially the masses, especially the poor. And that was that if you wanted to stay up after dark, you, you didn't want to buy candles because candles are really expensive. So what people would do is they would buy a, they'd buy whale oil. And whale oil is exactly what it sounds like. Somebody went out on a boat and killed a flipping whale and then like took their fat and like oil from their glands and stuff and then sold it in jars. And then you'd put it in a lamp and you'd light the wick and then you could read at night. You could hang out with your, your spouse. You could hang out with your kids. You could have a conversation after dark. Massive, massive life improvement to be able to stay up after dark, right? There's a catch. A whale oil lamp is, one, extremely expensive, and two, explosive. So you'd be like reading Junior, you know, his good night story, and all of a sudden his nightlight turns into a Mokolov cocktail. House burns down, everybody dies. Not a great product. (laughs) John D. Rockefeller saw this, and he was up in Cleveland, Ohio, and he figured out, hey, there's this really weird black stuff that comes out of the ground in some places in Cleveland, Ohio, called oil. And a buddy of mine is a scientist, and he has figured out how to distill kerosene from the oil. And like, so oil is like made up of many different parts, gasoline, uh, turpentine, kerosene, like there's all these different parts. And depending on how you process it, you get different things out of it. So, like, one of the side effects of making kerosene was that you also make gasoline. But nobody needed gasoline back then. So, like, dumped it in the rivers and stuff like that. <laughs> not, not, not a nice thing to do. But kerosene is much better than whale oil if you want to read at night. It's much better mm-hmm. to put in your, in your lamp because, one, uh, it's not explosive in the same way whale oil was. And, two, John D. Rockefeller said, I'm going to charge 10% of what the cost of whale oil is for kerosene. And anybody, like if, if you can make it and make a profit doing that, guess what happens? Everybody uses kerosene. If you're like at church the next day or at a, at a bar or coffee shop, yeah, my, well, my wife started buying this kerosene and we can stay up to all hours having delightful conversations and reading inspiring novels. And so like everybody bought it and John D. Rockefeller became the richest person that's ever lived. Like six or seven or eight times richer than Bezos is now. Jeff Bezos, that Amazon guy. He was 3% of the United States GDP. So, like, for you nerds out there, try to wrap your mind around what that means. It's insanely rich. But he got rich by helping the most people the most. That's business. Yeah. And for anybody that's trying to make a living in audio, it cannot be about your value, about how much you're quote-unquote worth. It has to be about how do you help the most people the most. And when you do that, when you make an impact, when you change the world, when you help a lot of people, the side effect is that you will also make money. You're going to, that's the easy part. The hard part is figuring out how do you help the most people the most. Yeah. Well, I love what you're doing with the free sample and all that stuff. I think it's it's very different than most people. And I'm sure there's people listening Thanks, to this man. right now that are thinking like, well, I'm not a mastering engineer and like mixing is more involved and takes longer to do than mastering. It does. So like- what tips would you give for someone who's maybe looking to focus more on the mixing side or like any, any ideas that, I mean, maybe they're all secret ideas. Yeah. You wanna oh, dip, no, no. Keep... I'll, I'll give away all of them. Sure. Um, yeah. So I would say first, of, let me just kind of like limit myself to three tips here or else I'll keep going for the rest of the day. I would say one, and if any of you guys listen to the Six Figure Home Studio podcast, this is all we talk about, this sort of stuff all the time. 
So check it out. It's available where all podcasts are, are sold. No, it's free. <laughs> it's free. <laughs> so free. you can get it anywhere. And um, I will vouch for his podcast. The Six Figure Home Studio podcast is amazing. It, it's thanks, been man. definitely very life-changing for me and, and definitely very beneficial to my business as well. So well, I'm glad everyone should listen to it. Thanks, dude. Well, yeah. So uh, top three tips for mi- people that are trying to mix for a living. I'd say one, uh, use a CRM. A CRM is Customer Relationship Management Software. And basically... It's kind of like an email application, except it's got really fancy contact information in it. So you can look at it, and it integrates with like how much you've made from each project and as well as how much each project you're trying to win can be worth. So no one's a real grown-up, really, period, and no one's going to remember to follow up um, and keep in contact with their potential customers and their previous customers. When you have a, a CRM, I use something called Close.io, but there's many out there. HubSpot, uh, Pipedrive. Uh, yeah, I use Salesforce. one called Sales, Salesflare. Yeah, Salesflare, Salesforce. There's a whole bunch of different ones out there. So look around. Uh, HubSpot's kind of the easiest intro one because it's free, at least at, at first. Um, but you basically import all your leads, people that might want to work with you, and you begin to consistently keep in contact with them. Because think about it. If a real grown-up ran an audio business, wouldn't they stay in touch with all their potential customers? Yeah, of course they would. Mm-hmm. And of course that's going to help your sales. The other thing um, is that the CRM is really helpful is following up with past customers to be like, oh, it's been six months since I've talked to Joe. Joe's the biggest customer I've ever had. Maybe you should contact him. <laughs> so a CRM is really, really helpful for that. Um, so I would say that for sure. Um, another thing that I think is really helpful is to keep in mind that as a mix engineer, you can kind of measure your success by the number of revision requests that you get. And so, like, the best mix engineer in the world never gets any revision requests, right? That's the dream, anyways. And that's challenging, but you can build systems that can dramatically cut down on revision requests. And one of, I think, the easiest, most simple systems to use is to remind your artist constantly hey, when you're checking these mixes, check them on at least five sets of speakers at both high and low volume. So on my website, when you go to download a master, this like little pop-up comes up and says, hey, make sure you check outside of the studio on five sets of speakers, both high and low volume. And then your options are, okay, I read this, and okay, I read this twice. Those are the <laughs> only two ways to close that, that thing. And by getting people to think about um, this important idea that a great mix and a great master sounds good everywhere and a bad mix or a bad master only sounds great in the place it was mixed or mastered so like if it sounds awesome in your studio who cares if it sounds awesome everywhere holy crap dude you got the skills and so reminding artists of that can really help cut down revisions because revisions will typically most artists don't know anything about this stuff so they're going to throw on their their ipod headphones or they're going to like worst case scenario, listen on their iPhone speakers and then offer you feedback on how to improve said mixes. That's not good. So I think like creating some systems around revisions is really, really helpful. Even if it's just as simple as like, hey, click this OK button that you're going to listen to this on more than one set of speakers. So anyways, yeah. So I would say that's kind of the, the second tip. And third tip, I would say... One of the things that I notice the most with mix engineers that drives them into the ground is that they feel guilty for choosing this line of work. 
mom and dad don't approve of you being in audio. Mom and dad don't approve of you being in music. And as a result, um, there's a guilt that comes with that. And the way that most audio engineers overcome that guilt is by trying to prove that at least they're a hard worker. And they're like, well, you know, I work 79 hours a week every week. That's great. But like you're doing that. You, you can't do that in audio because your ears don't work that way. Your ears are naturally cr- like adapted, evolved, whatever, to to cover up monotonous sounds so that if a saber-toothed tiger sneaks up on you a thousand years ago, that you hear it, even though you're next to a waterfall. So your ear tunes out things that you've listened to for a long period of time. It's just how our ears work. And as your ears tune that stuff out, you start to adjust the mix to compensate for that. So my, my kind of third piece of advice here is do not mix for 10 hours per day. Don't even mix for more than an hour in a row. Take 10 minutes off every hour. Rest. Go do something you enjoy. Get your pep back in your step. Get your motivation back. Make sure you're in an emotionally healthy spot because your job isn't to work long hours. Your job is to make the right decisions the first time. Absolutely. So, man, taking that time to like get yourself in a healthy spot, whether that's exercise, whether that's like I'm going to go play video games for 10 minutes – for every hour that I mix, like that's that's going to help you be better to just like be able to sit down. Because here's the thing. People judge your work based on the first 10 seconds of the song that they hear. Not, well, I've been listening to your song for the past 74 hours, and I have come to a conclusion about <laughs> your audio fidelity. It is fantastic. Way to go. That's not how people work. It's about that first impression. And you need to remove yourself so that you have lots of experience, quote unquote, hearing your work for the first time. Because it's that first listen that like, oh, gosh, I can't wait to listen to the rest of this song. That reaction is what drives more than anything else, I think. It's that like, and you, back to my girl. Yep. Doon, 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 doon. I'm hooked. As soon as like they, they, they repeat that Those first bar, two notes. <laughs> yeah. They, 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 they add, I, I'm not a music, music theory guy, but it's like that third bar comes in and you're like, oh, gosh, this is great. I want to I, I, I hear this whole song. And when you're making mixes, and the same goes true for masters, it should people should want to finish listening to it. And it's not like it doesn't matter if like it's the greatest ending of a song ever, or like the buildup is the greatest ending of the song ever. Because if the first ten seconds aren't amazing and they don't sound great, no one's going to listen to the the end of it. The A and R guy's not going to listen to it. The DJ's not going to listen to it. And everyone that's flipping through uh, playlists on Spotify is just going to hit skip if they don't love the first 10 seconds. Mm -hmm. So I would say, like, it's all about that first impression. And mix engineers tend to really fixate on, like, they kind of miss the the trees for the forest, if you will. Yeah. Makes sense? Makes sense, yeah. So I know you're a big fan of Tim Ferriss and obviously the four-hour work week, which we talked about earlier, and you've talked about kind of implementing these kind of automations and and uh, kind of efficiencies within your website and, and yeah. your business, and we talked about the mix revisions and the CRM, all that kind of stuff. In what other ways do you implement that into building your website to work for you as opposed to just like creating work for you? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I, there's a, a good tip on this is that I my website's built in... WordPress. Um, you know, I'm not saying everybody should drop Wix or Squarespace and do WordPress, but I love WordPress. And WordPress has a plugin called Gravity Forms. Gravity Forms is a form creation plugin, and you can basically make really uh, intricate forms that have logic baked into them. So, like, 
one of the questions, like when you go to book a project with me, you make a payment, um, and then it takes you to this form. It's really easy to fill out, and then it takes you to the upload page. And the form asks like really basic questions, like rate your mix on a scale of one to ten. And if like you rate your mix a five, then like maybe a little blurb will pop up and be like, "Wow, sounds like you really don't like your mix. What do you like the least about your mix?" Another question is, uh, "Did you mix this yourself, or did someone else mix this?" And based on if you say, "I mix this myself," the next questions on the form are totally different than if somebody else mixed it for you. So like one of the questions, if you selected somebody else mixed this, there's a question that's like, "Have you listened to their mixes before you're uploading them to mastering?" <laughs> Um, because believe it or not, that that is an it issue happens. I run into sometimes. Where like the artist will get mad and I'll, I'll be like, "It doesn't sound the right way," and I'll be like, "Okay, uh, do you want it to sound more like the mixes?" Well, I don't know. I don't know what the mixes sound like. You know, so like those the, having a form like that lets you do all this research without any extra effort. And you know, another one of the questions, one of the best questions I have in my form is if there's more than one song in a project. There's a question that shows up and says. Um, Please label your tracks in their their track order number. So 01 song name dot wave, 02 song name dot wave, et cetera. Everybody does that when they upload. So all I have to do when I get their files is drop it into the program I'm mastering in, and they order automatically one through whatever 10 or 12 or 15 or whatever. And there's no like, oh, is this song track number five? Oh, let me look at the, oh, wait, he put the song name, not the file name. I'm not sure which song this is. So there's all this like crap that you got to go through. And for mix engineers, same thing of like if someone's sending you stems and the stems labeled like FFF4279 and you're like, what, what, what is this? Oh, this sounds like it might be a background vocal on the fourth chorus. Okay, let me change. It's a lot of extra work to just get oriented. Yeah. So as far as automation goes, the, the best place to get started with automation is at the very top. And the top is getting the information from the customer. So whether you're using Gravity Forms, whether you're using like the Google Forms is pretty cool as well, or whether you're using, uh, there's a bunch of other form creation plugins out there, but having some kind of form where when you sit down to work, there's no head scratching. You know what you need to do and where you need to go. And, you know, another example is like, uh, uh, one of the questions on my upload form is like, is there a song from another artist that you used as a reference while mixing this? copy and paste like a YouTube link or something below to suddenly like get a picture of like, oh, okay. Okay. I see what they're going for. Cool. I can, I can, I can make, I can take this the rest of the way. So using a form, if you're not using forms, um, the size of your business, the maximum size of your business is like, I don't know, twenty thirty thousand $30,000 per year. You're not going to break that, like that level until you start to have forms when people are uploading stuff to you that cuts out all the like, the five emails back and forth about like, oh, I noticed there's two kick drums. Did you want those both in this song? No? Okay, cool. Good to know. Uh, which one did you want? Like there's just all <laughs> this back and forth that's so easy to automate. Where Even if it's just like you get an email from the form plugin with all the answers to their questions and it's all right there. That's amazing. I've definitely implemented a lot more of that into my business in the last year or so and have seen a drastic shift in the amount of work I can get done and the, the amount of back and forth that I've saved on emails. That's awesome, huge. man. Yeah. Way to go. That's like that's like the real grown-up work right there. <laughs> like it, it feels so good when you do that work because you're like, oh, I feel like a real adult right now. Yeah. Like, and when you first send it, you're like, I don't know if this is going to work. But then once it does, you're like, holy shit, that like 
that, that just saved me so much time. Like, and I have all of this stuff documented and I can quickly reference it. And like, it, it's amazing. Totally. And the big kind of take home from that there is that when you did that work, Mike, the dollars per hour that you're making went up. Might have been a dollar, might have been two dollars, might have been three dollars. But when you cut work out of your day by automating it, the uh, the dollars per hour that you make goes up. And mm-hmm. eventually, it's just about how do I get all the other stuff that I could pay someone minimum wage to do for me, but I can't afford to pay anybody. How do you automate all that stuff so that your dollars per hour goes up, so that you can keep making music for a living for the rest of your life? That's awesome. I love that. Well, I think that's a that's a good spot to wrap up. So if people want to learn more about you, how can they do that? Yeah, uh, check out chrisgrammastering.com. If you, uh, it's G-R-A-H-A-M, but if you just Google Chris Graham Mastering, I'm going to pop right up there. Um, so yeah, check that out. Check out the podcast, sixfigurehomestudiopodcast.com. That's like the best way to get to know me and to learn more. Um, the podcast, we've got like 65 episodes out right now, um, and it's like, like it's exploding. Like we get 9% more downloads each month on average. And it's just been this bananas, like runaway viral thing. So yeah. And, and, and it's like, to me, this episode that we just did is like one of the most important ones that I've had on, on this show. Like, I I think that like, I mean that with all honesty, like in terms of the information that like anybody who's looking to get started, I think is going to learn a ton from this episode. So, um, I could say that your podcast has definitely extrapolated everything we've talked about today and gone into much more detail. So people should definitely listen to it. Well, it's been great hanging out with you. Yeah, man, man, this is awesome. I I love it. I'd love to have you on at some point again and, and go deeper with it. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, please do. So that is it for this episode of the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast. Again, everyone thank Mike from the Master Mix Podcast. And you can do that by either going to listen to the podcast or tagging him in our Facebook group and saying thanks to him or by checking out his website, which uh, he'll, he'll tell you about in a second. We never talk about mixing stuff on this podcast. It's just not part of our brand. It's not what we do. However, I also know that the better you are with your audio skills, the easier it is to actually market those skills. And that until you have the audio skills down, Your business skills don't really matter as much. So if any of you are currently struggling with your mixes and this is the actual thing that's hurting your business right now, it's not your business skills. You got that down because you listen to this podcast, but maybe maybe it's your actual audio skills. Mike's got a little message for you right here. For you, the listener, if this is your first time listening to this podcast or hearing about Master Your Mix, make sure to check out the website, MasterYourMix.com, and I'm currently giving away a free download. It's called The Ultimate Mixing Blueprint. It is a guide to using EQ and compression in your mixes, and the idea is to help you be able to quickly identify which areas of your mix need to be cut or boosted frequency-wise, and it also gives you some tips with using compression as well so that you can get better results faster. So once again, check that out. It's called The Ultimate Mixing Blueprint. It's available at MasterYourMix.com. Or if you want to go even more in-depth and learn all about my six-step workflow for completing mixes from beginning to end, my new book, The Mixing Mindset, is now available on Amazon.com. Or you can visit MasterYourMix.com forward slash Mixing Mindset book. 
And this book is the step-by-step formula for creating professional rock mixes from your home studio. And it goes into a lot of detail about the important questions that you need to ask yourself every step of the way throughout the mixing process. And I give you the different scenarios that you're going to face and how to process your tracks and add effects and use automation and all of that kind of stuff that you need to do in order to complete your mix and make it sound awesome. So once again, check that out too. It's called The Mixing Mindset. And it's available on Amazon, or you can find it by visiting MasterYourMix.com. So that's it for today, guys. Thank you so much for listening. I had a lot of fun on this episode, and I can't wait to talk to you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Take care. Whoa.